A friend of mine tells a story about how he and his wife were going out shopping on a particular day. What made it a unique day was that my friend was doing this just out of a desire to to love and to show his wife how much he really cared for her. It had been a rough couple of weeks. Uh, His wife had just delivered their second child. And, uh, of course, she was feeling kind of, you know, not fitting into clothes anymore and that kind of thing. And, And it was kind of a discouraging time. And so he said, well, let's go out and get some new clothes for you. Let's go out and get some new dresses. So they went to the local store, and my friend put uh, a papoose on the front and put the newborn baby there and had his other child in hand. And each time his wife would try on a dress, she'd go back, and he'd be standing there with his, her purse in one hand and the baby on the front, and the other one in hand, and, and she'd come out, and he'd say, oh, how wonderful the dress was, and she'd go back in. And after it was all over, they ended up with two dresses and went home, and, and that was the end of it. At least they thought. The friend was doing pulpit fill in a number of different churches and would rotate through churches and had been at a number of these different places throughout the local area. Two years later, my friend was at a local church and finished preaching. And a woman came up to him. She said to him, I'm not sure you remember this, but do you remember the day that you and your wife were in a store And you were buying dresses for her? My friend had to think back and was like, yeah. The woman said, that day changed my life. She said, you didn't know me. You had preached at our church. But I was at that store. And I watched the interaction that took place as she saw my friend pouring out his love. An extravagant love in some sense towards his wife. This woman said to my friend, that day I watched you and your wife and I realized that my husband and I didn't love each other that way. And I realized there were problems in our marriage and in the ways that we interacted. And as a result of watching my pastor friend and his wife, this woman and her husband went to marital counseling and began to work on their marriage. thought about that story this week an awful lot. And I thought about that husband as he went and was involved with his wife. He wasn't there thinking, boy, am I going to look good. He wasn't there thinking, boy, this is going to earn me points. 
He was simply there pouring out his love towards his wife and had absolutely no idea how God would use that outpouring and abandonment in love to accomplish his purposes. We've been working through the last week of Christ in his earthly ministry before the cross. And we began looking at what we traditionally call Palm Sunday and Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Saw how Jesus was confronting those that were there with the fact that he was the king. And the question became, what are you going to do in response to that? Last week, we looked at the events that Matthew puts together, Mark puts together, or, or, or Matthew puts together, Luke puts together, Mark sort of separates them a little bit, where Jesus goes into the temple and clears out the temple and curses the fig tree, and we're confronted with the whole idea of God calls us to fruitfulness. This week, we look at one of the most emotional, compassion-filled events, not of Jesus, but toward Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 26. And there you have this wonderful little story. And the whole theme of the story is this. God uses our abandoned towards Jesus, our our giving it all up for Jesus in ways that are beyond our expectation. As you and I pour our lives out in worship, in appreciation, in service to our Lord, in expression of our love for him, God takes that and uses that in ways that we can't even imagine. In John chapter 26, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew makes a change in his presentation, and we're going to look at that in a few moments. But in verse 1, he begins by saying, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. Now that's painted with an incredibly dark brush. right next to that story is an account that is painted with just glorious brilliance. Beginning in verse 9, it says, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leopard, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. 
Matthew takes those events and then also in the verses that follow, the betrayal of Judas, and he, I love this word, juxtaposes, puts them next to each other, and wants us to be struck by the contrast. Wants us to be impacted by the actions of this particular woman. Now, as you begin to look at the passage, Matthew encourages us to take notice, to to take some moments and some thought as you work your way through this book and you're reading it and you suddenly come to this passage. It is written in such a way that Matthew is saying, stop. Notice. Something amazing is going on here. He does it in the way that he he writes this particular passage. The, The first thing you notice is that at this event, we are called to take notice because Matthew with this event will change the whole direction of his book. Up until this time, what Matthew would do is he writes a narrative, he writes a story that that Jesus was involved in, and then after that, right after that, he will write Jesus' teaching about the coming of the kingdom. Five different times Matthew does that through his, his, his gospel as he circles back around that way. Narrative and then teaching narrative, and then teaching about the kingdom. But suddenly here, he gives narrative and nothing more. Nothing is said about the kingdom. Suddenly the focus is no longer on Jesus' teaching on what the kingdom will be and that the kingdom is present and that the kingdom is there. Suddenly it changes and Matthew's focus is no longer on the kingdom It's on the death of Christ. And this little account begins that change in focus. The other thing that's so interesting in the way that Matthew writes this is that we are called to take notice through the construction of the passage. There's something in the writing of the New Testament time. Now, I'm going to give you the big word. You ready? It's inclusio. Or you can use the word enveloping. And it's where a writer uses a form. And what he does is he says something, then tells a story, and then says something at the end of the story very similar to what it began with. And the idea is take notice to what's in the middle. Matthew here does something very rare. He has a double enveloping. As he's developing the story, he wants us to pay attention because he begins there with a sudden contrast in in chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to them, as you know, the Passover. So Jesus talks about the Passover. Matthew includes that. Then the very next phrase is about a plot. 
Then comes the story. Then comes another plot and another mention of Passover. Now, we don't write that way so much today. But Matthew was writing that way, was telling the story that way, to say these two things are like brackets that are meant to focus your attention on what's in the middle. And what's in the middle is this amazing story of a woman. As Jesus is reclining at a meal, who comes in and begins to anoint his head with incredibly expensive perfume. Now, the other reason we're called to take notice the other way is we are called to take notice through the reaction of those watching. We're to put ourselves into the response of the people who are around Jesus, and we know who Jesus is as it's been developing through Matthew. We know that he's the king. We know that he's heading towards the cross. We know that because Matthew has been telling us about that. And so it's very appropriate for this woman to come and to anoint this incredible figure with this expensive ointment. That's not how the people around them respond. Notice there in Matthew chapter 26, after she anoints Jesus' head, and John says also, washed it, anointed his feet, and was doing all of that, it says in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were, they get ready for this word, indignant. It's exactly the same word that is used to describe the reaction of the religious leaders to Jesus cleansing the temple. They were indignant. They condemned her. So much so that Jesus has to say, leave the woman alone. You see, in their mind, they viewed this as an offensive act. Here is this woman touching a man she wasn't even married to. The response was shock. But you know what? The woman didn't care. It's viewed as an impractical act. As you read down through and the disciples are interacting, they were indignant, and they say, why this waste? Why are you wasting this stuff on on Jesus? Why would you do that? Shouldn't you sell this and, and give it to the poor? In fact, Mark goes on, and as you compare Mark and John, this is an entire year's worth of salary that is found in that little alabaster bottle. 300 denarii. The average worker earned one denarii per day. This is 300. 
it was probably worn around the neck and it was sort of a, if you want a social security for old age. It was a nest egg. And she takes it, breaks that alabaster bottle, which in and of itself had value, and began to anoint Jesus' head. What's interesting, the other thing that you contrast in this passage is this woman would anoint Jesus' head with 300 denarii worth of ointment. A year's wages. Judas will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The cost of a gourd slave. And the contrast is It's viewed as an impertinent act. By the way, it took a lot of thesaurus work to get all these eyes. But it's viewed as an impertinent act. She's proclaiming this one to be the Messiah. Now Jesus will say, there is a symbol here. I'm about to die and and she is preparing my body for death, which won't take place afterwards. Matthew leaves that out. And Jesus gives it a significance beyond the understanding of the woman. But for the woman, I believe she's anointing this one that she understands to be the anointed one of God. And those around are indignant. And then finally, it's an ignominious act. It's condemned by those who are present. How dare she? How dare she? What the woman is actually doing is she's simply pouring out her love pouring out her compassion, abandoning herself in worship of her Lord. But there's something else you need to know about the woman. Matthew doesn't mention it, but John does. Do you know the woman's name? It's Mary whose brother just a few weeks earlier had been resurrected from the dead and brought out of the grave. And in joy and in thanksgiving and in celebration and in worship, she abandons herself and an expression of love to Jesus. Matthew calls us to say, stop. Take a look at that. Take a look at your own life. Take a look at what God has done in your life.
Take a look at the greatness of who God is. And where are you willing to abandon yourself in worship of him? As Jesus goes on, he begins to teach the disciples. And I think that's part of why there's such a focus here is he's teaching his disciples something. In verse 10, it goes on to say, aware of this, aware of the attitude of these people, these disciples, the, it is the 12 that are the focus of Matthew. It is the crowd that is the focus of Mark in this particular event. But aware of that, Jesus says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a great Literally, it's she has worked a good work. Done something not in excess, not ignominious, but something to be praised. Now, he wants them to understand exactly what he means by that. And so he goes on to say, and there's Three reasons. He says, first of all, stop bothering the woman because this is a good thing. Then he goes on to say, stop bothering this woman because you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. And then he says, stop bothering this woman because she's preparing me for death. Now, the first thing we need to understand is we are encouraged to emulate this loving abandon of this thankful disciple. But as we do that, as Jesus talks about the poor, and he says, you will always have the poor with you, we need to understand what he's not saying. He is not saying that we are to abandon the poor, that we are to forget about them, that we are to to forget about caring about the poor. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, we know that because just a few verses earlier, just that day earlier, Jesus is teaching. And in Matthew 25, he says to those that are listening, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. All of that is a way to show Abandon love to God as we choose to pour into the lives of others. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothing you? When did, you, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will reply. Remember, he's still talking about the kingship of God, of Christ. He says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus isn't saying abandon the poor. What he's saying is there is a limited time for these people to physically express their worship to Christ. There's only two more days left. 
in order to express that worship before the crucifixion and the burial. You see, but what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying we are called to show abandon in our expression of worship for God. Last week, if you were in discovery class, and I invite you to come out. Dave's doing a great job. Dave was talking about worshiping God and loving God. And he talked about the Shema. The word Shema means here. And it's the first word in the declaration that was repeated over and over and over and again by the the nation of Israel in their worship to God. And listen what it says. Hear, O Israel, Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God when it's convenient. Love the Lord your God half-heartedly. Love the Lord your God when it doesn't get in the way. God says in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all. That's the idea. Not that there's some breaking up. It's just Moses declaring we love God with all that we have and all that we are. Now, it doesn't mean that we take everything we have and put it in the offering plate. The deacons might like that. But it means everything I have And everything I am is committed to honoring God. Is abandoned for his glory, for his honor, as an expression of worship to him. It's an abandonment in our worship of God. It's using everything I have, everything I am, to bring praise and glory and honor to God. It means I use my computer in a way that brings honor and glory and praise to God. I use my car in a way that brings glory and honor and praise to God, even as I cut the person off on Sunday morning trying to get the church open. All is to be given in worship to God. That's what this woman did. She gave all. Now, Matthew doesn't focus so much on this, but John does. And that is, we are called to show abandon in our gratitude towards the Savior. How could we ever repay him for all that he's done? And it's not that we attempt to. That's a foolish quest. We don't try to pay him back. 
but we express our thanks. We express our gratitude. We find ways to say thank you, God. I had to stop during the song we were singing during the offering because it just chokes me up every time I hear that song. And the reason is because of an event that took place, and I've shared it before, one of the hardest things that I had to face, and the Lord and I had a lot of discussions about, was when my father was dying, and we were in Louisiana, and he was up here. And we knew that it was his last days, and it had happened all of a sudden. We were trying to make our way up here, and I wanted to make it up to see my father one more time, to, to see him and talk to him here on earth one more time. He got the news that he had died as we were driving up here. And the song that was on the radio, actually it was a, it was a CD. And it was second chapter of Acts singing, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. And I can remember in the midst of hurting and some anger and some confusion, wanting to say, Lord, I don't understand. But even in the midst of the struggle, I want to let you know how thankful, how much I love you. Fortunately, all the others were sleeping and I was singing it away. That's what Mary does here. I don't always do that. But that song really helps to focus that attention. Mary abandons herself in gratitude. And I think abandonment involves this. It involves seeking only the honor of the other person. My friend who was loving his wife at, at, at that store wasn't wanting to get kudos, wasn't wanting to look good as a husband, wasn't wanting to do any of that. He was simply pouring out his love, pouring out his, his thanks, his gratitude, all of those things upon his wife. That's what Mary is doing here. It's Jesus who's the focus. I thank God for the times he allows us to do that. One of those times is when we gather here on a Sunday morning. And I know it's hard. The kids have been crying all morning. The diaper needed to be changed two minutes before you were ready to leave. The, you know, the, the whatever it is, all the things that are going on. But to say, Lord, I'm going to use this time to honor you. Forget about the rest. I'm that one who raises my arms often. A lot of times on Sunday, I have to be careful because my mind can get focused on the message and all of that, but to abandon ourselves. I know we're Northeast, you know, most of us Pennsylvania Dutch are thereabouts, and we don't want to get too overwhelmed. But to abandon ourselves in honor 
of that other person. This kind of extravagant, abandoned love involves little care about the evaluation of others. I love the psalm that speaks about having an audience of one. There needs to be an attitude in our lives that says, you know what? If my God is pleased, I really don't care what you think. That's what this woman does. Abandon involves a willingness to pay the cost. If we're going to love in an abandoning way, it costs something. It may cost us time. It may cost us money. It may cost us our pride. How many times do we hold back in worship and abandonment to God because we're kind of afraid how we're going to look? Not this woman. And finally, such abandon is honored by God. You see it as you continue to read down through there and you see God using this abandonment in unexpected ways as he goes on and says to those that are around him, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my funeral, for my burial. She didn't know that. I don't think Mary understood that. I don't think she understood all the ramifications. But God used it in a way to honor his son that was beyond anything that Mary could have imagined. Then it goes on to say, and wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, that act of worship will be remembered. The coolest thing about loving God is we never know what he's going to do with it. But he does great things. There's a story. I don't think I've told this one before, but I wonder how many of you know a man by the name of Ed Kimball. You may not know him, but the heavens do. You see, Ed Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who just loved his God and loved those that God had brought in his life. And so he began pouring out his life to a bunch of young men that God had brought into Ed Kimball's life. One of those young men was a Boston shoe clerk by the name of Dwight Moody. And Ed Kimball had the opportunity bring Dwight Moody to a saving knowledge of Christ. Dwight Moody became an evangelist. And he was preaching his evangelistic message in England. And a man by the name of Frederick Meyer, pastor of a small church, F.B. Meyer, heard his message and was just caught on fire because of the zeal of Dwight L. Moody. 
he began to preach and began to work with the college movement at that time. And in the process, he became engaged with the YMCA. And he was sharing, and as he was sharing, he shared with a young man, a baseball player, whose name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday became an evangelist. And he began to lead revivals across the country. And as he came to Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a group of men that became so enthusiastic about his message that they decided they wanted to do another group of meetings and get people together to hear the gospel. And so they invited a guy in by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham started to preach during that week in North Carolina. And there was a young man by the name of Billy Graham. You may have heard of him. Who came to know Christ as his Savior because of that. And it all began with Ed Kimball. Who chose to abandon himself. To love God by loving his children. God did incredible things. When we abandon ourselves in loving God, God can do things beyond our comprehension. The Kingdom Kids teachers that are back there right now, out of love for God, pouring their lives into those children, we have no idea what God might do. To the pastor who chose out of his love for God to love his wife well. We have no idea what God will choose to do. To a woman who simply chooses to love Jesus. God uses it for eternity. We're called to an extravagant worship. An abandoning love of our Savior. Now, there is a contrast. This will take two seconds. In total contrast, we are warned of the danger of abandoning our Lord. Notice the very next story in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, How much are you willing to give me to betray? and it would destroy me. Paul reminds us of this in a very different kind of way. In Philippians chapter 3, he tells us about that sense of surrender. To fail to love our God is to bring destruction. But to love him in abandonment, Paul says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You see, the disciples saw the act of that woman as a loss. That God turned to great gain. Judas saw his actions as a gain that became an eternal loss. Paul says, but when I abandon myself to Christ, 
lost. I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them, we saw this two weeks ago, scubala, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The most valuable thing in Paul's life was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of the suffering in order to become like him, even in his death. God calls us to abandoned worship of an incredible God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can worship you in that way. Father, allow us to take some time today this morning, to look at our lives and to find those ways that we can love you with greater abandon, that we can worship you with greater extravagance, that we can find the ways that bring you a greater honor. Father, thank you that we begin that through our relationship with you through the death of your son and our faith and acceptance of Christ and what he accomplished. Father, we pray that we would demonstrate that relationship, demonstrate that love in all that we do. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus.